Hello and welcome. This is A Reason for Hope and we are live with you for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast guided by your questions on the Bible. So if you have questions on Scripture, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture that you'd like to delve into, maybe uh, world events from a, a biblical perspective, maybe events in your own world and own life, something you're going through and would like a biblical perspective, really any honest question that you have, knowing that we're going to find the answers in Scripture, that's what we're all about here. So we're very glad that you're joining us to send in your questions to guide our time along. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be hosting today and following along those questions on our various platforms as we go along. And with us today, first and foremost, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing? Good. It's good to see you at a slightly more concave angle. Yes, we've kind of scooched in a bit. I'm sure everyone already noticed. Yeah, they're all like, like scooched. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my gosh, they're so much closer. I don't. <laughs> I'm Both just distracted. physically and personally. And then, <laughs> yes, we hope so. Also, <laughs> Pastor Peter Martin, or Peter Martin, how are you doing today? <laughs> doing pretty good. You're doing good? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, it's great to be here with you guys. What day is it? Thursday today? All oh, right, Thursday. Thursday. These weeks just fly around oh, yeah. since doing this show, but... Um, well, as I mentioned, the Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We are with you Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or whatever time that is for you all around the world, wherever there's internet, you can find us, which is very exciting. And we are glad that you're joining us. And we have a lot of regulars as well. So welcome to anyone that's stumbled upon our broadcast. A Reason for Hope is a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. That's where we're broadcasting from today. Don't let my accent fool you. We are in Tucson, in the Wild West, down here in Tucson, <laughs> Arizona. I don't know how I ended up here. Just got lost, and here we are. Uh, but you can you can uh, join our live uh, uh, broadcast on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you go to that Watch Live tab right there, it will take you to our live page. When we're off air, you'll see a countdown to our next show and a schedule of upcoming shows. Not only a reason for hope, but our regular services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson Wednesday evenings and our three Sunday morning services as well. So you'll see a schedule of upcoming uh, broadcasts that you can uh, join us for, and you're very welcome to do that. The direct link for that is ccftucson.online.church, but again, you can find that link on our website. That's probably the easiest way to navigate to it. Uh, We're on Facebook as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or facebook.com slash ccftucson. Or just search in the search bar for Calvary Christian Fellowship and you'll find us there as well. We have an app for your mobile device, your iPhone or Android was the word you were here yesterday was the word I was looking for yesterday. I was like, what's that other phone company people? Uh, iPhone or Android, I couldn't think of that word yesterday. But uh, we have an app, just look for that Calvary Chapel logo uh, dove right there with a the red background. That's our app. You can download it on your mobile device, your iPad or your cell phone. And you can watch us there as well. That's pretty cool. Or also on Roku or Apple TV, if you have those devices, you can watch us on your big screen at home. Uh, On YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope, or the official handle is youtube.com at A Reason for Hope 546. Or again, just search for A Reason for Hope. There's a picture there of Scott and Sean in Israel, and that's us there. We're live there, and our services are live there as well. So that's another way you can join us. Uh, before I forget all these channels, please uh, be sure to like and subscribe and on YouTube, click the bell so you're notified when we're live. We'd love to reach a further audience and have people involved. So uh, like and subscribe and share and all that good stuff. You can follow our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, 
on Twitter. His handle is Scott R for H. That's Scott letter R number four letter H on Twitter. He posts highlights from the show and also uh, kind of commentary on uh, world events, kind of prophetic things and things like that. Very interesting stuff. Um, news goings on and all that good stuff. So follow Scott on Twitter if you're a Twitter kind of person. Last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you are listening to our previous show uh, pre-recorded, so you'll want to use um, the email address and we get to those on our next show and consider joining us on one of our live platforms next time you are stationary and not on your drive time. With all that being said, Peter, would you like to pray today? Sure. That'd be great. All right. Uh, Father, we love you so much, and we want to spend this time focusing on your word and uh, your truth, Lord. I pray that uh, all the conversations that we get into and the questions that we have the opportunity to answer would be something that uh, encourages us in our walk with you and helps us grow in our understanding of who you are and the plan that you have for us. We're grateful for you, God, in mm. your name. Amen. Mm. Amen. It's true. Amen. Well, you guys have a tradition on Thursdays of kicking us off with a book, uh, not book review, but book recommendations. Yes. Um, but today I think you're going to talk about a, an author, is that right? Well, uh, so we want to talk about the Lord of the Rings novels, mm. but there's a complexity to this topic because up until this point, we've been talking about Christian nonfiction. And uh, Christian nonfiction tends to be a little bit easier for people to digest and swallow. Christian fiction is a little bit more difficult, especially fantasy fiction. So what we're going to be doing is looking at J.R.R. Tolkien, and his views as to why he wrote a book specifically that was a fairy story. Why did he write a book that was fictional? Mm. What did he see in it? And uh, hopefully that will help people understand not only his work uh, and appreciate him a little bit more, but if you haven't read the Lord of the Rings novels or seen the films, I, I you know this is one of those rare times where I would say, watch the film, maybe don't read the book. <laughs> because, oh, <really? laughs> uh, yeah, so the books are excellent. I've, I've read them. They do meander a little bit. Uh, mm. So what Tolkien was mm. fantastic at is he was really, really good at world building. He wasn't the best at character development. We'll talk more about that next week. Wasn't the best at character development and pacing. If he would have written the book today, he would have had an editor that would be like, J.R. <laughs> you know, you could, you could probably cut out maybe... 50% of this book, you know, mm. there's, a, there's a lot of walking, there's a lot of songs in it, it's very interesting. Mm. The movies are amazing, though. They yeah. may be some of the best modern films that have been released in the last probably 50 years, mm. um, and that includes Back to the Future. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Peter Jackson, just beautiful, beautiful films if you've never seen them. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, again, why he chose this particular medium, why not just put his philosophy and his theology into a nonfiction book. And uh, particularly how we can approach this type of literature, even made by people who are secular. So um, that would be really interesting. But before we get into it, do you have anything you want to add or clarify? Nope. All right, cool. So I am going to be reading some select quotes from an essay that J.R. Tolkien wrote himself called On Fairy Stories. And the reason why is because he wanted to defend <laughs> this very premise that we're about to defend for you guys today. Mm. Why would somebody write a fairy story? Now, particularly, he's defending himself against people that looked at fairy tales as being childish. And he was basically being accused of uh, 
bending down to get large amounts of money. Like, hey, anyone could write a fantasy book. Why don't you try to write a real narrative, man? You know, mm -hmm. like, yeah, every, it's a bestseller because people are stupid. And, you know, what happened to the days of Shakespeare? And what happened to the days of Milton when people wanted to read real books about real stories? And Tolkien is defending his decision to write a fairy tale. And he is also going to fight against these people. He's going to counteract them and say, you're actually wrong about this genre and why people attract to it so much. It's not because of a lack of intellect. It's actually because of a desire. So uh, this is reading from his essay. Fairy stories were plainly not primarily concerned with possibility, but with desirability. If they awaken desire, satisfying it while often wetting it unbearably, they have succeeded. Now, this is what he means by that. He's saying that when you're looking at a fairy story, the reason why children are interested in it is not because children are dumb and believe that these things could actually happen, right? It's not like kids are watching these movies or listening to these books after a certain age and actually believing that these things can happen or could happen. The reason why kids are into it and the reason why they allow their imaginations to run wild is because there's something pleasing about what is proposed here. There's something amazingly and immensely desirable about the world that's being crafted, mm -hmm. something that people want to enter into. And we'll talk more about that desirability in a second, but that's what he's saying. The reason why people flock to fairy stories is because they present things that are intensely desirable to people, but they cannot be presented. So his argument is they, these things that he's about to present for us cannot be shown adequately in a straight narrative format, right? If you're just going to tell a straightforward story without any fantasy elements, you cannot actually appropriately put these things within it because they would uh, be out of place. Now, he gives a little caveat, though, and he says, however, this can be ill done it could be put to evil uses and may even delude the minds of which it came. But of what human thing in this fallen world is that not true? Men have conceived not only of elves, but they have imagined gods and worshipped them, even worshipped those most deformed by their author's own evil. But they have made false gods out of their materials, their notions, their banners, their monies. Even their sciences and their social and economic theories have demanded human sacrifice. So this one seems to be more against the Christian uh, opposition to his decision. There would be there, there are a lot of Christians, both in Tolkien's day and today, that would say the fantasy genre is a corrupting genre. It moves people to paganism. It moves people to the belief in magic, which is like Wiccan, and it will move you away from God into the occult. And there was a huge rash of parents when the Harry Potter books came out that yeah. were heavily opposed to it, mm -hmm. fearing that it would cause like a, a, a rise in demonic activity, a rise in you know, paganism and things like that, that would uh, corrupt and conform people away from the gospel and the goodness that is within God. Now, Tolkien's argument against this is he says, fantasy can be used for a good purpose. But since we're in a fallen world, it can also be used for an evil purpose. So he's acknowledging that. He's saying it can be used for an evil purpose and it can be corrupted. Even if someone does it well, the mind of the reader can corrupt something done well into something evil. Mm. But that's not a reason not to engage in it 
because literally anything can be corrupted in this fallen world towards evil. Right. Uh, Christianity just, has been used for evil. <laughs> absolutely. Christian, even, that's, a, that's a fantastic and probably perfect example because even the best written book in the universe, a book that was written by God, by inspiration of God himself, has been twisted by corrupt minds into corrupting practices and belief systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the basis, right? If you were to talk to a Jehovah's Witness, for instance, they read the Bible. That is what they read. They have a twisted interpretation of the Bible, but they do read the Bible. Um, now, that, that's a very important point for us to make. So we can't attack fairy stories. We can't attack the fantasy genre be, just because people can use it towards evil uses, just because people can utilize paganistic uh, things in order to corrupt it. Now, as a big fan of the fantasy genre, what do you think about that? Well, obviously, when we're talking about where, I guess, the narrative starts and the message ends, there's obviously a lot of questions you have to ask about the hows and the whys that you're coming to those conclusions. When I'm talking to people, and obviously modern entertainment leaves much to be desired in the way of positive edification, but that's more a problem that's surfaced in the last two years, you take things on a case-by-case basis because, as I've personally been blessed and given the opportunity to get my nose more in my Bible as a result of certain forms of media, there are also opportunities I've had to warn people away from underlying messages, and neither would seemingly be the sort of things you conclude from just outright advertised children's shows, fantasy programming. So much like with the issue that Dr. Tolkien was addressing, you have to understand the common factor is the fallen mind, not the fallen medium. There are, in fact, bad messages that can be circulated in this world. But the question is, what is the goal in mind? Are you coming to the text with an agenda? Are you coming to the text with a conclusion? Or are you coming to the text simply with the text? Mm. And this is something that we'd even ask from people reading the Bible. Obviously, when we ask for the, and this is completely valid, pagan elements of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, When we're talking about the outright naming of certain characters, they're taken right out of Norse paganism. The poetic Edis uh, names this genealogy, essentially, of the first dwarves that were born from maggots. You can ask about it if you want. But one of them was named Gandalf, and a good section of them were the inspiration or twists on certain translations of the troop that made up the Hobbit and Thor and Oakenshield's company. So obviously you look at all that and you go, okay, I see common names, but were the dwarves in fact formed from maggots? And the answer would be no. We'll go more into this next week, but Tolkien would be the first to acknowledge, and his family as well, that the creation of the dwarves in the Lord of the Rings universe was taken right out of Genesis 22. I did a a YouTube video about it. And what's interesting about this as well is when we ask what is the ultimate goal of the narrative. Well, let's ask the most important common factors that should be at work in any work of fiction. Who does it present God to be? Cruel or compassionate? Well, the God in the Lord of the Rings universe, his name, if you care, is Eru Iluvatar. But, uh, Say that this, five times fast. <laughs> I, I'm sure he would. But the <laughs> point of emphasis on this being is that he created these entities to glorify himself, known as the Valar. We would associate them with angels, people, again, with 
broader scopes would call them the gods and goddesses, but Eru's at the top. Maybe they like Kaiser, I don't know. Right. By the way, this is from the Silmarillion. Yeah, the genesis of Lord of the Rings, right. if you will. <laughs> so this isn't in the Lord of the Rings novels, but the Silmarillion is kind of like an appendix in which he's able to tell other stories from that universe and more the creation story. Yeah, so if we're going to like say easy, medium, hard, as far as readability <laughs> is concerned, Hobbit is easy mode. Right. You've got Lord of the Rings, which again is lengthy, but it's got the the good movies based around them. Yeah. You can kind of follow the plot line and go, oh, hey, that's different. Silmarillion's hard. There's no other way to put it. And unless you're really into this kind of genre, it's going to give you a hard time. But the point of emphasis on God's nature was not just in the glorification of himself, the demonstration of his power and glory in creation, but what was really interesting about it was the devil character of Lord of the Rings. Morgoth is his name. Uh, Sauron was just a toady, if you're ever wondering. Um, this entity obviously taken elements from Loki, elements from Lucifer, elements from even other forms of mythology that Tolkien would have been available and familiar with as well. But this entity didn't basically become evil because he was a straight white male or because he uh, embodied this sort of idea of the patriarchy or because he was fundamental in his pursuit of truth. He was in fundamental rebellion for Ilu uh, of Iluvatar's purpose for creation and instead said, it ought to be made in my image. Mm. Now, I look at those themes, not those quotes, not those, you know, copy and pasting, make sure that Morgoth's, you know, got horns or something, you know, all that jazz. But the theme is showing people in common and borderline neutral ground mm -hmm. what this could be if explained in any other format. Because let's be frank, you bring up the Bible with some people, a wall goes up. But you have the opportunity, perhaps, to talk to someone with material they already know and say, what did you think about that character? And even his contemporary and fellow inkling, C.S. Lewis, did this when his nieces and nephews were asking him questions about whether Aslan was Jesus. Not subtle, definitely less subtle than Tolkien as far as uh, uh, allegories are concerned, which Tolkien hated using, by the way. But he would always answer the questions with questions. What about Jesus is present in Aslan? What about this universe that Professor Tolkien built points you to another goal? Not just to read Lord of the Rings for its own sake, which you're allowed to do, but those who want to get more out of their entertainment than just killing, in Tolkien's case, 36 hours of your life per book, you have to ask the question, does this actually have more value than just killing time. Can I use this to glorify God? And that is something that Tolkien himself would have affirmed in reference to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, where it notes, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all for the glory of God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean that the only things we're allowed to do in life are those within our cathedrals and we have to only read our Bibles and we are only ever allowed to speak languages that Scripture has been translated into? Obviously, that's ridiculous. Jesus himself didn't model that. But if, on the other hand, we ask, I have the opportunity today to enjoy something. Can I get Jesus in on this? And that is what I think not only made Tolkien such an exceptional writer, 
but in the way that his, and granted he was a Roman Catholic, we're all grade eight Protestants here, but his Christian worldview, his understanding of there not only being a definition of right and wrong, that God's nature is the standard for that right and wrong, and that rebellion against that is the foundation of evil, what he called Morgoth's ring, all line up with the Christian worldview and give a bridgehead, basically, for actual evangelism, something that can be useful and entertaining, and useful for what purpose? The glory of God. And we use that word a lot, again, glory, but it just shows worth, it shows weight, that he can influence, that he can make these things more meaningful than the thing in of itself, which even on its own is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Which, uh, here's another quote from Tolkien uh, that kind of wraps up a lot of what you're saying. Uh, in such fantasy, as it is called, a new form is made, fairy begins. Man becomes a sub-creator. An essential power of fairy is thus the power of making immediately effective by the will of the visions of fantasy. Not all are beautiful or even wholesome. Not at any rate the fantasies of fallen man. And ha- he has stained the elves who have this power in verity and the fable with his own stain. This aspect of mythology, or sub-creation, rather than either representation or symbolic interpretation of the beauties and terrors of the world, is, I think, too little considered. Okay, that's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. This is what he's saying. Tolkien believed, and C.S. Lewis believed this, and the rest of the Inklings, including a guy named Owen Barfield, really believed that mankind being made in the image and likeness of God, one of our prime abilities is to be sub-creators. What that means is when God creates for six days and then he forms man, Man becomes what uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, one of the romantic poets, said, the seventh day of creation. We are a repetition in the finite mind of the infinite act of the creation. What that means is, is that God creates in his image, then man takes in the beauty of God's reality, and then creates in our image. We create worlds and ideas and philosophies and technologies in our image. And the more they adhere to the divine reality, the more beautiful they are. Mm. The more they depart from the divine reality, the less beautiful they are, the more ugly they are. Um, And so what Tolkien is saying here is he's saying what fantasy does is it takes these really big and complicated ideas of Christianity and reality, and it's able to utilize symbols to represent them. So you've heard the saying, a picture can say a thousand words, right? There's a reason why man used to write in uh, hieroglyphics. Not all cultures did, but there's a reason why a lot of men did. The reason why is because a hieroglyphic says infinitely more than a letter does, Mm. right? You could look at a picture and it represents a lot. There's a reason why Jesus taught in parable. Why didn't he just give us his philosophy? Because a parable has the component and the potential to say infinitely more than a simple prose discourse about some ideology can give you. Right? Jesus was able to cram in a lot of deep, spiritual, impactful truth into symbols. So what Tolkien is saying is the human mind is actually more adept at translating symbols than it is at translating straight dialogue. Mm. So what happens to people, this is what Sean's warning about, but also encouraging us towards, when you're consuming media, especially the fantasy genre, you're being bombarded with symbols and representations of thoughts and ideas and philosophies. And if you're savvy about it, you can sort through them, and the good ones 
are going to become amazingly better, right? You could actually, this is going to sound weird, you could actually get more out of a good, well-told story than a Bible teaching, right? A, yes. a simple discourse about some sort of a truth, right? You can look at these representations of truth and get more out of it than if someone just tried to teach you something. Mm. And that's because the human mind is a symbol-making machine, but it's also a translation <coughs> machine, right? We have the ability to translate mm. symbols in a way that impacts us emotionally as well as intellectually. Mm. This is why people flocked. Why, why listen to a song talking about God's glory as opposed to just talking about God's glory, right? Why do something artistic when you can just do it straight up? Because the symbol, the metaphor, the art form the sub-creative capacity of man repeats in a finite sense the infinite act of creation, right? We are resounding through the created world God's beauty in a way that can be absorbed directly as opposed to through the, the medium of our minds having to translate. Uh, now, one of the reasons why I want to talk about this book today specifically uh, is because we're going through the book of Ezekiel right now on, on Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. And when you go through the book of Ezekiel, you're like, why is this book written this way? It's a mind-blowing imagery, mm. right? Scott went through chapter one last night, and there is so much imagery going on that is over the top, out of this world, literally in the in the most classic sense that I could use that phrase. It is over the top, out of this world. And you're like, why is God presenting himself this way? Why not just be a guy, right? Now, why not just walk around and be like, hey, Ezekiel, I'm the Almighty. Let me tell you about myself. Why have these clouds and these wheels and these massive angelic beings with these faces of different creatures presenting themselves, this trippy, like, mind trip going on? It's because God must interact with the human mind, and God is spirit. Mm. So the mind has to interpret. It has to have a medium in which they can interpret God's glory so God must represent himself symbolically. He has to. There's no other way for him to do it. Right. Uh, because we can't perceive the spiritual. We can't see God. Mm -hmm. So these symbols that are so packed that turn people off, they're like, <laughs> I try to get through this. This is a little much, man. Actually, those symbols make it more palatable for you to understand the divine mm -hmm. than if God were to directly reveal himself to you and mm -hmm. just tell you what he's like. Mm -hmm. Right? You need some sort of an intermediary in order to be able to process the divine. And that's what the symbols do. A representative symbol begs for interpretation. That's what they're there to do. Now, there are right interpretations and there are wrong interpretations. And then there are interpretations where we're like, I could go this far and no further. This is what I think it means, but I, man, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. That's okay. But Tolkien is saying, I am able to represent these amazing facets of the human experience, these amazing facets of good and evil. Right? There's a reason why it's called Middle Earth. It is between good and evil. It's between the elves and the orcs, right? The east and the west, the west being that of heaven, Valinor, and the west or the east, which is not west. That's right. That's right. So you, you have these amazing concepts that are packed into this story. There's also a reason in Tolkien's mind as to when you go through similar, Silmarillion, as well as, by the way, the Chronicles of Narnia, God sings the earth into creation which I think is a really beautiful concept, right? So when we think about Genesis 1 and God is creating using word, saying, let there be light, we tend to think of him speaking it. Tolkien actually perceived God as singing it, right? Mm. Actually like singing yeah. a song. And Morgoth, by the way, 
The reason why he fell is not because he couldn't carry a tune. No, he no, no. He was yeah. intentionally added cacophony into the harmony. Yeah, right? and the, what was interesting was, and just an aside, we'll get to your questions in a moment. Yeah. All the Valar represented some specific aspect of nature, not that they created it, but they sung something into the right. song. And Iluvatar said, let it be, mm-hmm. <laughs> and created what we call Erda, the, the world. And what's interesting about it is Morgoth's original purpose was to improve all of his fellow Valar's work, but instead he introduced corruption into all of it, a deviation from Eru's purpose rather than, as you said, the cacophony rather than the harmony. A harmony. And uh, Tolkien's idea is that man is invited to join in the harmony of God. Yeah. Right? That's the purpose of man, that we join into his harmonious song that's already at work within the created work that we can see. Right? That's why Tolkien didn't feel the need, as you said, Sean, to, be, to beat you over the head with biblical themes. He just believed that if you look at reality, reality already is in harmony with God. There's disharmony sewn into it through the wicked one, but the harmony still remains, and it's there to be listened to by all who are willing to hear it. And Dagor Dagoroth is coming. There will be a day that Eru will deal with Morgoth's work once and for all. Absolutely. So let me run through these last, because we, we went a little, but I hope this has been fun <laughs> for you guys. Let me run through these last couple things on fairy stories. Uh, he says that the main thing that the fairy stories present us with is a uh, recapturing, meaning we're recapturing innocence. We are uh, also entering into fantasy in which these thing, these big themes can be represented. Uh, he said it provides us with an escape, which I'll talk about really quickly. What he says is that modern man specifically wants to escape from the ugliness of modernity, right? So he's living at the, we're still living in it, in the outset of the Industrial Revolution, in which uh, essentially pragmatism or practicality has been put on the altar and sacrificed in its place is beauty, mm. right? And th- this is what he says. He says, um, it is indeed an age of improved means towards deteriorated ends. And he did theorize that man's soul was being weighed down by the corruption of nature. And real quick, we'll talk about this more next week. But the elves, there's a reason why the elves live in perfect harmony between human innovation and nature, right? They live in the waterfall. They live in the forest, right? They, they don't destroy nature. They innovate nature to incorporate them within it, right? Where the dwarves do the opposite, right? The dwarves go into the caves and they mine out the beauty of nature and they hoard it, right? So uh, we'll talk more about what the different species represent in his mind. But essentially, again, he just sees the world the way it is and then he portrays it in this mythology that he has himself created. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that he wants to hammer home to people. And this is why also, as Sean was saying, the way that someone's going to see the world is going to come through in their art form. Right, so if someone doesn't see the world the way that we do, that's going to come through in their art form, and we need to be careful to 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 recognize that as opposed to being moved by it. Uh, now, the final thing I want to mention, this is so cool. I, I just want to read this because it's, in my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful things I've read. It says this: the Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical, in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. That's the happy ending. Yeah. But this story <laughs> has entered history and the primary world. The desire and the aspiration of the subcreation has raised to the fulfillment of that same creation. 
The birth of Christ is the happy ending of man's history. The resurrection is the happy ending of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of all reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find true and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on their own on its own merits. The Christian joy, the Gloria, is the same kind, but it is preeminently, infinitely, if our capacity were not so finite, high and joyous. But this story is supreme because it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused, and but in God's kingdom, the presence of the greatest does not depress the small. Redeemed man is still man. Story and fantasy still go on and should go on. The Evangelium has not abrogated our legends. It has hollowed them, especially that of the happy ending, mm. right? <clears throat> so this is a way that we, as Sean was saying, why do we have the right to look at fantasy that's not explicitly Christian and not be moved by it? This is why. Because even the most ardent atheist can't help but see and be moved by the inherent beauty of the created order. Mm. And therefore, the song of creation is moving in them just as it's moving in you and me. Though, as Paul says in Romans 1, they deny its source. Mm. Right? They see it, but they just deny where it comes from. And he's saying that the, the, the whole beauty of the resurrection is that it hollows all art forms if we're willing to see which parts of this art form point to God and which part uh, point actually to his absence. Mm. And that's an important thing to be able to sort through. But anyway, next week we'll talk more about The Lord of the Rings. It's a really, really great series. We'll talk about some of the themes I like. I personally love the fact that Tolkien was a veteran. He puts a lot of his experiences mm. as a veteran in it. So I'll point those out. But yeah, I ho hope that you guys have enjoyed this section. Yeah. Or watch the movie. Don't read the book. I just watch the movie. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that. All right. On to the questions. We have a question from Ted um, who uh, had a question yesterday and restated it today. Thank you for doing that, Ted, and hanging in there. Um, so the statement, uh, God helps those who help themselves, I know is not biblical. Um, or, so is there any truth to that? God helps those who help themselves, or is it more to the side of God is just going to make everything happen? It's all about grace. All I have to do is believe, which is true, or is it a balance? Neither, actually. Things? When we take that hardline stance of, well, I have to do things in my life or God's not going to be glorified. Mm -hmm. That discounts a fundamental aspect of God's nature as sovereign. But if, on the other hand, I just default totally to sovereignty and say there's no point in me living my life because they were written before there was yet one of them, that discounts the responsibility, the genuine respect God's given us as his creation mm -hmm. to accept or reject a relationship with him, not just ultimately and eternally, but on a daily and momentary basis. So you have to get the whole picture of God. And, and again, there's, I'll use the modern term, kind of a cringe factor when people say, no, it's about balance, keeping both in perspective. But mm. you have to ask in perspective to what? Not to elevate both, but to understand both are pointing to a reality, to mm. note the point of fiction. If you can understand the nature of God is bigger than us, then there is room for him to not only be sovereign over our lives, but also for him to not be limited by our decisions. Likewise, in giving us the ability to make decisions and treating us and addressing us in Scripture as if those decisions matter, you can't say it's an either-or. You can't even necessarily say it's a both-and. 
You ask, which is in line with God's character? Mm. And if the answer is both, then you ask, how far? And that's what keeps the balance from being an overflow. Mm. Yeah, to to kind of uh, pull from what we've been talking about, so Lewis and Tolkien had a friend named Owen Barfield, and uh, they said that he was the smartest guy they knew, but no one liked his writing because it was just too dry and dull. Mm. Uh, but Barfield, he had this really interesting concept that he called participation. And it's really revolutionized, revolutionized the way I've thought about the Bible and Christian living ever since I've learned about what it is. So participation is this concept that God desires for man to participate with what he's doing. Mm. Uh, the example that Barfield uses is in Genesis 2, God brings animals to Adam, and then Adam names them, and God recognizes the names. So God mm. could have done both, but he actually invites Adam to participate with him in his act of creation. Mm. So as we were talking about with the arts, but this is also true with God's sovereign will and plan throughout mankind. God's desires to participate with man. Mm. Why didn't Jesus, after he rose from the dead, just stay on this earth? Why didn't he just preach his own gospel? Because God wants us to participate with his gospel message by being the method, by being the medium in which that is shared throughout the course of the world. Mm. God has a plan for your life. He wants you to participate with him in it, right? He yeah. wants you to, to be a part of what he's doing within your life and within the world as a whole. So we understand that that actually strikes the perfect balance. Participation means that God is doing everything, but I still have to participate with him. So it goes from the, the hardcore Calvinist. It's like everything's predetermined and there is no free will. Well, no, no, no. God wants you to participate with him, so there is free will. However, it's God's plan, so you're not creating things. The hardcore Arminian says, well, we could disrupt the will of God mm -hmm. because we have sovereign will, and therefore whatever God wants to do has to take into account what we're doing. Well, no, no, no. Participation says, actually, again, it's all God. We're just choosing to participate with him. Yeah. Put another way, you'll either do it willingly or unwillingly, but God's will is going to be done, right? It's better to be on the willing side of that equation, though. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks, Ted, for that question. I hope that helps you out. Um, there's certainly things of God that we don't fully understand, and that's okay. He's God, and we are not. Uh, <laughs> question from Susie. Uh, do you have to be baptized to be saved or baptized to receive the Holy Spirit? It's a question from Susie. Yeah, baptismal regeneration, is it biblical? Yeah, no, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a really, really good question. So, yeah. um, gosh, I, I feel like every question is just in this, this zone, man. <laughs> man. It's in the zone. Okay, so uh, using Barfield again, his idea of participation when it comes to salvation. Now, what he believed is that everything participates with one another within this divine will. So what that means is when we say, do work save us or does faith save us? Barfield says that that's a false equivocation because essentially what you're asking is you're looking at two sides of the same thing. The manifestation of faith is going to be works. Therefore, you could in some sense say that baptism does save you. Does that mean that the action saves you? No. The faith saves you, but then the faith then manifests itself within good works. Now, one of the good works that we've been given to do is to be baptized. That's one of the things that we're supposed to do. Now, does that mean that someone who maybe hasn't give, gotten this message, someone who doesn't understand the importance of baptism, somebody who uh, doesn't have the opportunity for baptism is not saved? No, the faith alone is what saves them. But then that faith has the opportunity to participate with works in which that faith is manifested. So if I tell somebody, hey, one of the works that God desires of you is to be baptized, is to go through this ceremony 
in which you represent, you symbolize your immersion into Christ and into the church through this ceremony, through this acted out symbol in which you engage your body with your faith. If, if I explain that to somebody and I show them that it's a good work that God wants and they're like, nah, I'm not going to do it. That's not a good sign, right? It's not a good sign of where your faith is at. Yeah. If you're going to deny a good work that God has presented in front of you, such a simple one as well. Like yeah. if you're not willing to do something that simple, a simple act of obedience towards God because you don't understand it or you don't like it, mm. that is a bad sign of where your heart's at and where your faith is. Right. So again, it's not that the action saves you. But the action is participating with the faith that actually has saved you, right? Yeah. It, it's already happened through your faith, but that should manifest itself in what you do. Mm. And this is why James mockingly, and it is a mock, some people don't understand that James is being sarcastic here, but he is. He says, uh, some people say, I have faith and you have works. He says, well, you show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He's, mm. he's mocking the person. Mm. How do you show faith without works? You can't, you can't yeah. right? He's, he's making fun of them. He's saying like, okay, fine. You, you say you have faith, but you don't have any works. Yeah. Well, the, the obviously that is a contradiction in terms, yeah. right? You can't have one without the other. Yeah. They're yeah. two sides of the same coin. Right. Yeah, and of course you encounter someone who's passionate about this issue but doesn't get into the realm of false doctrine, that unless it's in water and unless it's at our church, unless it's in this motion and all these mm -hmm. other deals, right. we wouldn't contradict anything they'd have to say. Right. But if on the other hand we were to kind of pull back the reins a little bit and say unless you're water baptized, say it says right there in Acts 2.31 that you're to be baptized, doesn't say in what, and of course that that is the gospel truth. What I usually do is I'd go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul, for whatever reason, seems to discount the concept of baptism in favor of the gospel as if those are two different things. This is, of course, speaking to Corinth, a church that wasn't all that right but understood the basics. He was addressing their sectarianism. We don't know anything about that today. Another James sarcasm moment where he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should, well, should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I baptized the house of Stephanus also. Besides, I don't know whether I baptized any other. So notice this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. So for the hardcore position of baptism, I mean water baptism, I mean this ritual as our group has defined it, mm -hmm. is salvation, is the gospel. For whatever reason, Scripture would disagree with you and say there is a distinction <laughs> between the gospel, what saves, the gospel unto salvation that Scripture lines out, and, of course, what Jesus rightly defined during his encounter with his cousin, John the Baptist, permit it to be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill what? All righteousness. And this is where the dilemma oftentimes comes for people, is asking the question, so does godly living save me, or does receiving Jesus save me? Mm -hmm. Well, you start somewhere, but the journey continues. And you say, well, I didn't go on the journey. Well, I'd say it doesn't mean that you didn't start in the right, right. place. It doesn't mean that God won't bless that. But you have to be careful and to say, okay, 
So this also plays this vital role. That's going to be the end-all, be-all of everything. The pastor said so. Mm-hmm. Why would he lie? You see the problem. So if there are examples in Scripture that would downplay the, the concept of baptism in favor of the gospel, we have to at least agree on the common ground of Scripture that those are two different things. Mm-hmm. If the gospel is what leads us to salvation, then baptism isn't a saving work. It's a work of someone who is saved. Right. And there is a difference. So we look at Jesus' example. What did he do? First thing in his ministry, he got baptized. Yeah. God recognized that as a good thing, right. but it would no more save us than it would be doing great wonders in Jesus' name, performing great signs in Jesus' name, teaching people in Jesus' name, because even that kind of person could be said in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah, no, I, I don't tend to quote the Church Fathers too much, but I just love this quote, it, it, especially on this, this topic. So this is Clement of Alexandria in a book that he called The Pedagogus, which just means instructor. Um, he says, Nothing is wanting to faith, as it is perfect and complete within itself. If aught is wanting to it, it is not wholly perfect. But faith is not lame in any respect, nor after our departure from this world does it make us who have believed and received without distinction the earnest the earnest of future good. Wait, but having an anticipation grasped by faith, that which is future, after the resurrection, we receive it at it as present, in order that uh, that we may be fulfilled, which has been spoken, be it according to your faith. All right, so what Clement is saying is he's saying faith in and of itself has to be perfect because it's placed within a perfect person and a perfect work, namely God, and in the resurrection of, of Jesus. Mm. So if that, by his logic, he's saying, by that logic, faith can't be wanting, but it also can't be lame or incomplete. It has to be expressed in particular ways. So, th- and then he uses this to interpret, Jesus is saying, according to your faith, let it be so. So when Jesus healed people by their faith, that's what Clement is saying, that the faith without the healing is nothing. Right, so if the person was sitting around believing that Jesus could heal them and Jesus never healed them, there's nothing. Right, it's just like right. you're still you're still lame. Your faith is as of, of no report, as James says. Faith mm-hmm. that works is dead. Right, so it's just a dead faith. Mm-hmm. But if you believe and then Jesus heals you as a result of that belief, that's faith manifesting itself in reality. Mm-hmm. That's how he's viewing it. So uh, really cool. And again, great question. Um, baptism is important. I feel like so many people in our modern day have lost the importance of ceremony as a whole, right? Ceremony mm-hmm. is beautiful. It's a way for you to represent your beliefs and your ideologies to a group of people that will hold you accountable. This is why marriage is so important. But when you live in a culture as individualistic and as selfish as ours, you get into this idea of like, why do I have to represent my faith, right? Why do I have to show people what I've done? Why can't I just tell people that I believe in God? Well, it's because when you engage your body with what you believe, not only does it strengthen that belief, but again, it invites other people into your journey in representing it and symbolizing it to others, mm. right? It's a right. really, really important facet of the Christian walk. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Susie, for that question. Great question. Uh, question from Yari. What happened to the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that was given to Jesus? And he had a second part to the question, was Jesus poor, rich, or middle class? So what very... happened to those gifts? 
um, and they would have essentially funded the trip that they made to Egypt and mm. what they would have lived off of during their time waiting for Herod to die. Uh, frankincense, for those of you who don't know, is the special kind of incense that the priests would use in the temple, so kind of an exclusive market, but nonetheless a highly valued one. It wasn't easy to produce. Myrrh, a lot of demand, but not a lot of value. Gold, however, still remains uh, quite the pretty penny if you catch the drift. And that was the point. The gifts of the Magi, of course, had significance. They were symbolic in referencing him as a king, a priest, and, of course, a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And those were all information they got from Daniel, who was one of them. And that's 800 years prior, for those of you who are wondering. But the point being made is just that, when, or 600, excuse me. Uh, when we're talking about the issue, though, of Jesus being poor, wealthy, I know Yari and those of you listening as well, some of you come out of a prosperity gospel group and couldn't fathom the idea that Jesus wasn't wealthy because he had faith, and faith makes you wealthy, right? Well, nothing could be further from the truth. The best uh, refutation of the concept Jesus was high class or even middle class is given to us at his dedication. When they made a sacrifice for the dedication of their newborn child, Joseph and Mary offered two turtle doves. Now, that's not in reference to the 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> that's a reference to the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus made a provision. Normally, when a child was born, they'd offer a lamb, but a lamb is kind of you know, middle-classy as far as its value is concerned, and you give that up every time a child's born. Average family's got six to eight kids. It's a lot of lamb chops. But in the dedication of Jesus, there was a provision made for the poorest of the poor for the Levites, and it was the offering of two doves. Mm -hmm. And that was literally the dirt cheapest animal that was available on the market. And you could note how much that hit home with Jesus when in the two occasions he had to cleanse the temple, he specifically chewed out those who were selling doves. Why? Because that was a provision for the poorest of the poor, mm -hmm. the family he grew up with and was still a part of. And note, were selling them at exorbitant prices, was putting barriers between people who financially couldn't worship God apart from these sacrifices. Mm. So in taking advantage of the provision for the poor, it wasn't Joseph and Mary being economical and deciding to save a, a quick buck. They literally had no other choice. That's what that was there for. So yes, he was very poor, but note he can relate to, as the quote goes, the rich as well as the pauper. Right, right. and and remember that he worked as a carpenter, which is not high paying. Not high paying, man. You know, so yeah, he was he was a blue collar as blue collar gets when right. that was going on. So if he was wealthy and that gold was sufficient enough to carry him through his life, what was he doing in the wood shop? I don't you know. Like that's that's just uh, something very simple. And then obviously when he became an itinerant preacher, you know, he's not he's he literally says to somebody, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah, he was a couch surfer. Yep. He was just rolling around, depending on the kindness of strangers, essentially. Uh, and a lot of times, obviously, moving between towns, you're not going to have any house. <laughs> you're going to yeah. be, be in tents and stuff. So, uh, yeah, very, very impoverished guy, for sure. Mm, great. Well, thanks, Shari, for that question. Great question. <laughs> uh, question from Taylor, I like this question a lot. Uh, what's the difference between coveting and wanting, apart from the spelling? Right? <laughs> no. That's it? That's, uh, that's it. <laughs> spelling. No, uh, very good question. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of Christians throughout the ages have struggled with the idea of, like, is it okay to have aspirations? Mm -hmm. So most have taken on a more Buddhist or Stoic mindset 
which is that any aspiration is bad because desire is bad. Desire leads to um, desire leads to greed, and greed leads to suffering, and that whole whole thing. No dukkha. Yeah, no dukkha. Exactly. That's a Buddhist term. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's it's not. I don't dukkha. want to anyway, do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like the sound of dukkha anyway. Uh, so. but, yeah, to you to cleanse yourself it. of passion and want is the goal of Stoics, and it is the goal of of um, Buddhists. Now the problem is is that that's a very anti-biblical sentiment. You, you don't see that anywhere within the scriptures. Now, many Christians have lived that way, but that's not what we see presented. And it is because people couldn't reconcile this idea that we're not supposed to covet, thou shalt not covet, mm. with thou shalt not want, should we have desires. Mm. So um, when we look at the person of Jesus, for instance, one of the things that turned people off to Jesus was the fact that he was not an ascetic guy. He was a guy who had wants and desires. Mm. He was passionate. He had emotions. He was a very emotive dude. Uh, in fact, he he complains about the Pharisees in like a mocking way because he's like, what do you want, man? John was like the ultimate ascetic guy. He was like living by the Jordan eating locusts. And I'm like the ultimate friendly guy. You know, mm. I'm hanging out with people. I'm eating with them. I'm drinking with them. I'm going to weddings and I'm making water into wine. You know, like, and you reject both of us. You know, you say John has a demon because he's ascetic. And you say that I'm a glutton and a wine bibber because I eat and drink. Mm. So he's like, you just can't be satisfied. So G- people did uh, struggle with Jesus because of the way he lived his life. Even though he was impoverished, he did enjoy life, right? He did. He was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his fellow companions. Mm. Um, now, what this means for a Christian is we do have to distinguish be- between the two. So covetousness, it's, it's a Greek word. It's epithemia. Now, what it means is it's a deep and intense craving for that which is forbidden to you. Mm. That's what epithemia means. So when I'm talking about covetousness, what do I mean by saying wanting something that's forbidden to me? Mm. Well, it could be something that is not mine. That's the most likely thing. It belongs to somebody else. Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, Mm -hmm. right? She's forbidden to you. So I'm desperately longing for something that I am not supposed to have. Yep. Or I'm desperately wanting something that uh, either belongs to my neighbor, something that I used to have in the past, or something that I want desperately in the future that I don't currently have right now. The idea of the Bible is I need to be content with what I have now, and that becomes the basis mm. for want. right? So I'm able to desire, but that desire is not coming out of dissatisfaction with what I currently have and a craving for what I don't have, mm. but instead it's a want coming out of contentedness. That what that means is that when disappointment hits, and it will, you are not flattened by it. You can Mm. deal with it. You can actually say, okay, this is not what God wants for me. It's not something I can have. That's fine. You can accept it. Someone Mm. who's struggling with covetousness, when they can't have something that they want, they steal, they kill, they destroy in order to get it. Mm. They break covenants. They break trust, right? They violate people's consciences all to get what they want as opposed to what they should have, yeah. right? So someone Or even maybe depression and... Or depression kind of like, and, and wrath and yeah. bitterness and jealousy. All these things are born out of covetousness. Mm. So there's much more we could say about that. Uh, if you want, you could read my book. I have a, <laughs> I have a chapter on envy. Uh, but uh, in, in other words, again, it's the difference is, is where is the want coming from? Is it coming from contentedness yeah. or is it coming from dissatisfaction and discontentedness? Mm. Very good. Anything to add to that, Sean? No? Uh, we're coming up to the end of the show. Um, real quick, uh, Renee asks, what do you think about Craig Kinnear and Gary? Keener. Yeah. Ke- oh, Keener, thank you. And Gary, what was Habermas. that? Habermas. Thank you. Couldn't speak highly 
or more highly of them both. Uh, in their field, they are fantastic resources, uh, the way Gary Hummerboss uh, was one of the uh, signatures and uh, compliments of my father's book, Reasonable Doubts. Oh. Uh, Gary Hummerboss, leading world authority on the resurrection of Jesus, as far as the evidence is concerned. He's uh, a lot like Tolkien and Lewis's friend. Uh, he just lists off the evidence. He knows what evidence actually is, and he's a fantastic resource if you are engaged in debates with atheists, Muslims, and Jehovah's Witnesses who would all challenge the idea of a bodily resurrection and a historical resurrection of Jesus. He's the tops for that. Obviously, uh, I wouldn't make him the end-all, be-all of my faith because he's another human being, but if you want to know something about the resurrection, he's the guy to go to. Craig Keener, same format of the compliment, but yeah. instead of resurrection, it's miracles. Uh, he put together probably, there are others, but the most thick volume available of documented miracle cases, and he would be the guy to go to if you run into an atheist or a naturalist even, a skeptic who just assumes there is no such thing as miracles, because he's got it all documented, he's done his homework, and he knows how to gather the data. Again, uh, when it comes to their opinions or their secondary beliefs and other things, they're allowed to have their own relationship with God, and I wouldn't challenge them on anything they've said or outspoken about, but both Craig Keener for Miracles and Gary Hammerboss for The Resurrection, I will gladly stand at their sides before the throne of God and see the crowns pile on for them, because they've been a great blessing to me, and I hope they will be to you as well. Wow. So uh, you recommend them, then? Modest. <laughs> they're okay. Yeah, they're okay. <laughs> Are you familiar as well? Peter, I know Gary Habermas. I, I do yeah. know the other guy. Yeah. And who yeah, was he, it that did the, you said your, your dad's book? Um, uh, Gary Hummerboss. He was one of the signers and saying this is a good resource. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks and for And he's going to be at the time of this recording uh, the Calvary uh, Tucson Pastors Conference for Apologetics this year. Oh, he is. In, uh, is that in March? I believe so. March. Yeah, over at Calvary, Calvary Tucson. Yeah, it's a great conference. Cool. Well, good stuff. Thank you, Renee, for that, for that question. And uh, with the end of our show, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Sean. Uh, once again, uh, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope at gmail. If you'd like to send in your question, we can get to them tomorrow. We have one day of the week left here on Reason for Hope. And we will see you then. Same time, same place. God bless you. Thanks for being part of the broadcast. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.